Hi, welcome back to the TT Wine Explorer podcast. I'm Tanya Tomaszewska. Today's episode is about wine and investment. If you listened to my last episode, episode seven, about building a brand with Ian McDonald, the founder of Liquidity Wines, you'll recall that we discussed the type of investment which owners of a new winery need to make to design and implement their vision. Well, today, this episode is about wine and investment on the other end of the grape to glass spectrum. That is, what is the investment potential of a finished bottle of wine in the hands of the consumer or buyer of that bottle? This episode is about looking at wine itself as an investment asset class. I'm often asked by wine enthusiasts and everyday tasters whether wine is a good investment. Should they buy it and stash it away with the hopes that their collection will grow in value and provide a return to them? Maybe they'll have a little nest egg derived from their hobby of wine collecting. Now, I'm familiar with the various types of wines which are currently considered to be good investments, at least in terms of values, which certain bottles are fetching at auctions or on the global wine trade market. I also know some collectors who've done really well having accumulated a lot of wine over the past few decades, which is worth a lot now by today's standards. But these collectors often tell me that they got in at the right time, or a good time at least. I'm also aware of various advisory businesses which help everyday people select wines for investment, and these services also offer to source and store those wines for you while you hold your investment. However, to consider this broad question about whether to invest in wine, I feel what I need is a multidisciplinary expert to guide me, someone who's conversant not only in the world of investment, but also in the world of special collectible assets, both traditional and non-traditional investment vehicles. And so my guest today is Dr. Sarah Adami Johnson. Sarah is a vice president with High Net Worth Planning Services at RBC Wealth Management, with a focus on international estate, art, and digital legacy planning. Sarah helps clients based in Canada and globally with their life planning around these special types of assets. Sarah has a PhD in international business, is a lawyer with numerous legal qualifications from around the world, has art advisory expertise, and is also a trusts and estates practitioner. Sarah speaks at conferences worldwide about these matters, including things like crypto and digital assets. And if all of that wasn't enough, Sarah's just plain fun. She has her finger on the pulse of so many things and her curiosity and enthusiasm are unbelievably infectious. I first met Sarah about seven years ago now. I'd recently moved back to Vancouver from Australia. I just quit working in the law world and I decided to take a jump into the unknown. I decamped to the Okanagan Valley, British Columbia's largest wine producing region to live there for a season and work as a guide for a private wine tour company. I was starting from the ground up, literally driving all around the valley and taking an intense deep dive into the wine world to see if it was for me. I think I knew about two people when I arrived in Kelowna and it was during that first Okanagan Valley stint of mine when a mutual friend introduced me to Sarah saying, you two have to meet you're going to totally get along and you're going to become fast friends. And indeed we did. And the rest, as they say, is history. I always love my chats with Sarah Johnson. I hope that you enjoy our discussion today. Let's fly. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us, my guest today. Thank you, Tanya. I am so happy to be here. I'm a great fan of your podcast. Thank you so much. Now, I love that our conversations are so varied and far-reaching. We chat about everything from art collecting and travel and investment, wine exploring, design, current affairs. You've had such an interesting journey. Now, you're an Italian transplant Canadian, 
based in British Columbia with a background in art history. You have a law degree, you have expertise in trusts and estates, and you help people plan their lives. I mean, we'll get into your role at RBC shortly, but just for some context, can you share a little bit of a snapshot about your path as to how you got to this moment, at least in the professional sense? Yes. Yeah, so uh, in the thematic with wine exploration, I guess my life has been or turned out to be quite the journey, somewhat of a global adventure, uh, punctuated by passion for technology, finance, art, and also the law. So using a blockchain reference, my Genesis block, <laughs> you know, was in Italy. I was born in Milano, as you said. Uh, I grew up traveling the world, Africa, Australia, the United States. Went to law school, did my first master in the Netherlands, was trained at the Dutch Central Bank. And really, that's where I first got exposed to digital assets. We were studying the way that we could tokenize the euro to make the adoption more seamless for all the original European uh, Union countries and their conversion. Uh, then worked in London um, and then landed in the early 2000s in Kelowna. And basically for the last two decades, I got married a few times. I had a child. I finished a PhD and got called to the state bar in California, which you know you were there, the famous Attorney Oath Day. And we celebrated accordingly at Martin's Lane. And, oh, that's right. Right? And all <laughs> of and wine shall always be intertwined. <laughs> just love that. And so I had been working all throughout uh, as a wealth and estate planner before uh, BMO and now uh, with RBC Family Office. So that is a lot. We could probably chat for about two hours just about that path, but I really appreciate that really high level um, look at your flight path to date. So you are at this moment, um, as you mentioned, working with RBC, uh, your vice president, high net worth planning services. Can you explain a little bit about what you do when you say you focus on international estate art and digital legacy planning in terms, you know, in practical terms, you know, who, who do you work with and how do you help people? Yeah, I can happily say that I've been onboarded to my dream job with <laughs> the dream team. Um, my wealth planning position is really uh, uber, uber specialized. I work alongside more holistic planners, um, investment advisor, corporate executors, trustees, insurance, and private banking colleagues. My role really is all about guiding high net worth clients through their international asset footprint their art collection and digital asset management, and then assessing where things are and if there are any gaps or opportunity for optimizing their planning so that their heirs aren't left with, you know, big tax bill to pay or a huge mess in trying to find access or even making sense of the wealth left behind. I like to think really that my job is about helping clients to alleviate the burden of their success. You know, what I'd like to focus on today is the concept of wine as an asset class for investments. You know, wine is typically seen or can be as a special luxury product, a collectible. Um, you know, and I'd like to think about it or chat with you about it a little bit in terms of traditional investing and maybe some new non-traditional categories that have come up in the last couple of years. So first starting point, you mentioned uh, you know, you have a lot of expertise in helping people with their art collections. So I'm wondering, maybe we can talk about the similarities of investing in fine art and investing in wine. It seems to me that there are similarities as to how we view and experience art and wine as tangible things, how we experience them, what they, what they evoke for us, um, you know, the value we place on them. 
But from the perspective of banking and investment, are wine and fine art seen as part of the same asset or investment class? You know, are these just luxury goods and uh, collectibles or, you know, is there something more, I guess in plain terms for those of us who look at pie charts um, of investment strategies or weightings, do they sit in this pie chart or, you know, what are they? How do you talk about them? Yeah, this is a super interesting question. So in general, uh, in collection, we have on one side the fine art. So your painting, your sculptures, even the photograph. Uh, and on the other, the collectibles. And in there, you find the wine and other luxury goods like the Birkin bags or Rolex watches, the baseball or the Pokemon cards, uh, the classic autos that you like so much. So you can actually put the wine collecting into the liquid uh, luxury category and uh, all the collection kind of distinguish themselves because of the works that have subjective values, uniqueness, and aesthetic appeal. More recently, and I would say at the turn of the 20th century in particular, we've started thinking of both fine art and collectibles as financial in- instruments, or what I say, alternative investments. So uh, investments that are able to offer benefit of diversification. So borrowing from risk management terminology, art and collectibles may not always correlate with traditional financial markets like the stock and the bonds, meaning when the TSX goes down, rare bottles of wine prices may stay stable or mm-hmm. even appreciate. So according to the Knight Frank Luxury Investment Index, in 2023, wine actually remained one of the best alternative investments. The report um, actually looked at the past decade and fine wine prices have increased 149%. And that is the second best return over any alternative investment, whiskey being number one. So wine could provide both a potential for edge against traditional market volatility and then an opportunity for us for supercharge your portfolio, what Nassim Taleb would say, making it anti-fragile. So aside from being a personal tangible capital asset, wine shows an inherent valuable quality and aspects of holding cultural and as you often speak, geographical and historical significance. So wine then is a kind of an exotic asset. And even Warren Buffett back in 2020 was interviewed by Forbes. He had agreed that potentially, potentially underscore, it could achieve capital protection and capital appreciation. So the value of these assets is that they are um, in their long-term holding. So they may appreciate over time, but I underscore it, this might be a long time. So investor may need to hold on to them for an extended period to realize, you know, potential returns. So wine, I think of wine intrinsically as a quite illiquid asset, and that's the pun unintended. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. we also have to mention that it's an expensive asset class to care yeah. for and to upkeep, you know, both wine and fine art require proper storage, maintenance, uh, you know, the way that we can preserve their value really is about caring for them. So I'm thinking, you know, uh, many of my clients uh, invest in climate control storage facility, export permits, and export limitation, transportation, and other, you know, logistics, including insurance for loss and damages, coverages, and other things that add to the cost of these assets. 
And finally, just to address your pie chart comment, because I love it, you know, <laughs> as an investment strategy, wine and fine art generally represent a smaller allocation between two and five percent um, because of their intrinsic characteristics and potential illiquidity. But I have to tell you, the Deloitte Biennial uh, Art and Finance report that just got published last November 2023 showed that wine allocation could be as high as 14 percent in high net worth family offices. So that's interesting. And also interesting, just to conclude, is that recent auction houses and asset uh, base lenders have started accepting wine and luxury items as collateral for loans next to classic cars, memorabilia, jewelry, and watches. Wow, there is so much there that is so fascinating. I don't even know where to start. I think some of the things that I had in my mind you've touched on, one being, uh, you know, whether you look at it from you know, how you look at it for value and, you know, you're uh, cost-based. So if wine has gone up, whatever you said, more than 100% in however many years, the people who purchase certain wine, there's a whole people who purchased and have things in their de- in their cellar, um, maybe for 20 or 30 years. So their actual cost base for buying a bottle of wine is they got in it at the right time, because maybe they bought a bottle of Burgundy for $5, and it's worth more than 100 right now. Mm-hmm. And they've got loads of this, for example. And perhaps at the same time, what you're saying is maybe there's this flight, well, not flight, flock to um, luxury goods to have this uh, extra bit of alternative. And so there's, you know, is this when scarcity of products also adds to the value? You know, can should we look at this similar to, I suppose, works of art, you know, limited quantities? Is that perhaps how people look at it from the wine. You can't really guarantee what a market is going to pay for a bottle of wine at any given moment. There are trends, but there there's risk too, right? Completely, completely, yes. So in fact, unlike traditional financial assets, as we, I, I kind of mentioned and, and you underscored, it is complex to determine the value of wine and art because it is often influenced by subjective variables and the individual tastes, individual preference. And the subjectivity also can lead, can lead to you know certain level of risk and uncertainty in their evaluation. Um, I mean, after all, there is a reason why they're called Veblen or passion investments. Mm-hmm. You know, the pedigree who, uh, of the person that owned the bottle before you or the origin story, as you mentioned, you know, the provenance, the authenticity, the condition, they're all important factors. And um, this is the part where you really need to seek the help of experts, you know, and I would say such as yourself, Tanya, you know, and that's really is the key. Also, um, sorry, yes. No, No, I was just going to say, so I suppose it's a blend of having people who are wine experts who will uh, be able to provide the analysis of uh, trends um, and products within the market uh, to help you select the actual wine. But then within that, and another advisor who can look at your investments and Globo uh, from helicopter view to do the diversification um, for your pie chart, so to speak. 
absolutely yes exactly i completely you you got it um you know in and also if you consider the way that you can price it you know you might look at the ratings of the wine and the scarcity as you as you mentioned you know specifically for the scarcity that is really hard to predict you know a wine that is currently limited production is a good indicator but which wine will be scarce later on is more difficult to figure out right so predicting the future is also a real pickle and ideally again you will do some homework and some research on the wineries and the wine that you're interested in and look into the past performance of prices technology also we got to underscore this um can also come to the rescue here I, while i was preparing for this chat i actually read that you can keep track of wine prices now for almost five different five thousand different wines uh, there is a website winfolio.com and there's many more um but it, so in my opinion basically a successful investment in wine often if not always requires a level of expertise or access to knowledge and information and connoisseurship you know, that mm-hmm. really only professional in the industry can provide. And these people mm-hmm. can understand the ins and outs and other alternative, you know, markets. And truly for being able to appreciate the factors such as provenance and authenticity and any potential aging characteristic of the wine, that professional expertise is crucial. And we'll get, we'll, t- we'll go back on to the provenance um point when we chat a little bit later about uh, digital assets because as you'll be aware in the world of wine there still are lots of um, you know fraudulent (laughs) operators who you know are selling bottles of wine with the wrong or not the juice in the bottle is not what they say it is so uh, you know the risks of that and the provenance of the bottle and the actual you know is your is your wine which you think is supporting your investment, actually, all that. Um, but just to park that for a moment, or before we get to that, you mentioned uh, things like insurance and storage. So before we move to a digital asset discussion, um, do you have any cautionary tales or perhaps some suggestions for people who are thinking of starting uh, a collection of actual hard wine bottles? Um, maybe it's just that you mentioned insurance or how you store it. Yeah, so for investment and serious deployment of capital, um, the sector is really uh, mostly, uh, I would say, dominated by high net worth individual, right? Not only they have more knowledge, but really they have the pocket money um, uh, and the cash flow to uh, to be able to uh, to buy and invest and create those collections, right? Um, you mentioned cautionary tales. Uh, well, there is, as you know, because I know you bought this and you probably read it, there is that book, The Billionaire's Vinegar by uh, Ben Wallace. It described that notable standout exception of how and what is now a, a very infamous bottle of wine that one was thought to be owned by Thomas Jefferson. And it was bought by a billionaire in the US for $400,000 in 1985. But after the purchase, even with the best experts, they discovered that the wine was actually fake. And the investor collector ended up spending more than $35 million chasing the fraudsters and bringing them to justice. So 
especially I would say for old bottles, it's a wild west. You know, there is very little regulated market. There is lots of opacity, secrecy, almost a sense of snobbery and apparent indignity uh, if you ask too many questions, you know. And many deals are just still made on a handshake, gentleman agreement. And one of the biggest risks I would say when collecting, aside from drinking your collection... Which could happen. It happens to me all the time. Um, It's really the breaking, damaging, improper storage of the bottles, which could literally nullify the value completely. And with all type of investment, there is never a guarantee that the value in any specific bottle will actually increase. So... uh... Nothing is guaranteed, certainly in this in this space. And uh, but the passion drives it, as as uh, passion drives people who decide to build wineries and uh, make wine and then deliver it. And there's passion driving the consumer and the buyer. Uh, so, and that passion is driving uh, investment products, or maybe we'll talk about whether they're investment products in in the new landscape, the digital world, the metaverse. Uh, so, I know that you spend a lot of time. Uh, in that space, one of your areas of expertise is digital asset planning. So this is taking us out of the world of tangibles now, you know, that actual bottle of wine or an actual work of fine art, a painting, into the realm of non-tangibles. Now, I know this is a really broad topic uh, in and of itself, but today I thought we could focus on a space which I think is mystifying for most people, uh, including me, and that's NFTs or non-fungible tokens. Now, NFTs have popped up in the world of art, music design, and there are some alcohol and uh, wine producers who've also entered the NFT space. And before we dive into a few examples of this, <laughs> I know this is really unfair to ask you this question this way, but can you provide a really general explanation for people who are not familiar with this product of what an NFT is, you know, NFT for dummies. <laughs> yes. I'll be the dummy. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. And so you have to kind of, you know, uh, sit down, relax, and I will explain in 30 seconds what okay. an NFT is. <laughs> so I actually call this category of assets the incorporeal or smart, meaning self-executing property which is a step beyond a traditional software-based intangible property. So the term um, and the way, you know, the way that I explain NFT is by starting with the blockchain. So here, think of a train that never stops with new sequential compartments being added every couple of minutes. That's the blockchain. It is really a payment rail and a way of memorializing stored data within each linked compartment, forming that chain. Now, to get the data on the train, you need to buy a ticket. So this is the ticket um, that we refer to as the gas fee that the user must pay when you transact this asset. Now, your suitcase is really the token, the data that is uploaded on the train, the blockchain. So now, if the suitcase contains cash, or cryptocurrencies, it's called a fungible token. Whereas if it is as uh, if it just carries a unique item, such as a picture, a digital art, or a picture of a bottle of wine, then it's a non-fungible token. These assets or tokens travel on the blockchain train, and every time you buy and sell, the ticket memorializes which compartment they came from and their new spot on the train. 
So the NFT is a token. Basically, it's data, 011000 with code that you know, has information about an underlying asset. The digital, um, so the way that it works, I'm going to give you a practical example. Let's say you have a one-off rare bottle of Chateau so-and-so. Totally making this up. We take a digital picture of the bottle and then add some information about it, the vintage, the house, the winemaker, the date, and some characteristics, you know, about it the geographical you know region where it comes from for example and we save the picture and this information in a file then we up- upload the file into this code or nft and we mint it meaning we create it when we sell that bottle the physical bottle the digital wallet will get credited some money and automatically, this is why it's smart, because it automatically will change the ownership of this digital certificate with all that information about the authenticity and provenance with the bottle is coming from to the new owner. And that moment will be memorialized on a blockchain. The blockchain then is the accounting ledger of record that keeps all of those buy and sell agreement memorialized and will show the bottle provenance and point of touch and owners at any point of their life throughout the time from, from when it was first created at the winery until today. So that so if I bought uh, an NFT, I'm buying that digital asset and that chain of ownership correct that you mentioned and it may or may not be linked to an actual hard asset so correct. i'm just thinking for example in the luxury wine world maybe i'll just go through a couple of examples so for context um that have come up in the last couple of years so one for example is uh robert mondavi uh dropped an nft collection um it was a uh, a special collection where they made a limited series of 1,966 individually handcrafted Limoges porcelain magnum bottles. And in that, they put in the proprietary Mondavi blend made from a very iconic Napa Valley vineyard. So in that case, I understand uh, someone would have, if you bought an MFT, you would have got the dig- uh, you know a, a dig- digital uh image or asset of an image, the spinning bottle, but it was connected to a physical asset of the bottle in the, uh, the wine in this Limoges Magnum bottle. Mm-hmm. Uh, something different, for example, is Chateau Cantonac Brown, which is in uh, famous Margot region. They had an earth art NFT. So what they did, as I understand it, is that they took some art from the vineyard um, soils and they had an artist, uh, David Papa, come in and sculpted, um, made a piece of uh, sculpture from from the earth. And they took a, a, a video of that piece of art. And then... Um, the art, I guess, decomposed because it's, you know, it's, it's soil and they, and they left it to the elements. And then that soil, when it decomposed was put into <laughs> their eco-sustainable cellar to help, to help, mm-hmm. um, you know, reuse that soil. But the actual asset I understand was that digital video of the art, mm-hmm. um, before it, before it went. 
Um, and then my final example that I have just for today is that, uh, and I have to check whether it's still going. I think Sarah and I, you talked, you and I talked about this a, a year or two ago when it came out, but there's a Napa NFT wine club. So they're yeah. offering, you know, access to special NFT drops or a digital seed in their exclusive wine bar, um, you know, an opportunity to own a part of the vineyard. But this is all in the metaverse. You don't actually own a vineyard. You don't actually go into a wine bar. Um, you know, this is a wide world. And I don't know, you know, um, I think that some people still want to have an experience which they can touch and feel. But yet at the same time, in art and design and music, you know, there's, and you deal in the space, there's been, you know, a huge wave of people getting on that train. So, so here's my question, you know, um, what, why do you, what do you think? Um, and I guess this is maybe in a personal observation, not necessarily in your, uh, you know, your professional capacity, but drawing on your observations, you know, what, what benefits do you think, come to people from this? Do you think it's, it is just that the provenance and a mix of making sure that you, where you have the best possible chance of making sure there's no fraudulent um, activity with that, let's say bottle of wine or piece of art you're getting. Maybe it's a scarcity thing because only 1600 people get a, you know, this Limoges of Mondavi mm-hmm. um, or is this fun? You know, or is it like going to the casino and you're, you know, you, you, you're, you're just going for fun. I, I know this is very, um, plain and simple, but, uh, you know, what, what's going on in that world right now? You know, do you think this is going to go on for a while, just maybe in different manifestations? Yeah. So I would say yes to all the above with an underscore of the importance of what you said, you call it the utility and the community that it's created around the blockchain. So, so really, you know, per se, the, the, the blockchain transactions, are recorded from a technological perspective in a way that makes them tamper resistant. So once the information about the wine origin, the production, the ownership is entered in the blockchain into your NFT, it's there. And generally, you know, it cannot be altered, at least retrospectively. So the feature here helps the integrity of the information. And that's where we reduce the risk of fraud. But also, it creates a transparent and traceable supply chain. Each step of the production and distribution process from the vineyard to the consumer can be recorded on the blockchain. It enables consumers and in general stakeholders to trace the entire history of each bottle of wine, verifying the authenticity in this case and the provenance. But also, you know, think about technology in in a much bigger sense, like, you know, we can store unique identifiers on the blockchain, such a cryptographic signature, which I'm not going to define, but there are very secure signature or a QR code associated with each bottle of wine. And these identifiers can be scanned, can be verified. And then allow consumer and the the entire industry participant to authenticate the products and confirm legitimacy, right? So consumer can really access directly from the phone, from their pocket, really, real-time information about the wine, who they're purchasing from, the history, including details, granular details about the vineyard and the winemaker, the production methods, and the previous ownership. So really, all of that also adds to transparency. Yeah, you make an interesting point, because QR codes are being used uh, increasingly in the wine world on everyday bottles of wine for a lot of reasons. You know, people uh, have their phone, they like to look at things digitally, there isn't a lot of uh, real estate on wine labels anymore for all of the information, which uh, 
people need or want to see everything from all of the new labeling requirements and people want to learn more about the story. Um, it may be that people don't feel that it's enough to rely on the QR code of a bottle of wine that you pick up from your shop. But, you know, this gets me to another point. Um, just thinking out loud, I suppose there's perhaps different parts of the wine loving community that can play in the metaverse space because not everyone is going to be investing um, huge amounts of money uh, for in wine, but they might want to be part of a special drop or allocation. And this goes to the scarcity. Maybe, maybe this is maybe this will become similar to what is happening in the gaming world, for example, with avatars or clothing or designers. So you can go and buy your Dolce & Gabbana outfit in the metaverse, right? But you don't actually have to buy one. (laughs) Maybe you can't afford it. So I'm just speaking aloud. You know, it's it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting in the context of wine because the world of wine exploring is varied uh, in terms of who its participants are and what their, um, what their motivations are. And maybe this comes takes us right back to the beginning, which is the nature of these assets um, that we're talking about in the investment space. And perhaps this all goes back to what you said about passion, which is, you know, what is driving us to want these assets? And I suppose, you know, there's what what potentially could be growth, but there are no guarantees uh, of what a market will give you for that bottle of wine or that painting. We can we can guess, um, but I guess at the end of the day, you just need to love what you've bought uh, yeah. for investment. Is that you know if you're speaking to people, uh, if they're trying to decide, I mean, perhaps you've got maybe you just have to like it too. <laughs> Oh, a hundred percent. I think that's, that's the key. And, you know, to go back to, you know, the utility, what you said about the NFTs that a fad or, or not a fad in this specific space. Um, you know, I like to address this elephant in the room about, you know, the winter of crypto and, you know, everything mm-hmm. that kind of went down there. Uh, but really, I, I, I would say that what you just said about the, you know, what you consider utility is what it's important. You know, the, the beauty and the value and the taste is really in the eye of the beholder. But I can assure you that there is a superiority in the technology, right? The technology is fantastic. It is definitely not a fad. And what's fastidious and exuberant, it is actually our human nature, our own fallibility and our own irrational behavior um, that transform any brilliant tech solution into nightmares or speculative bet, even, you know, regular investment. Like if we think about the 1700 and the tulip mania, tulip bulbs can still produce beautiful flowers, but they're not nearly as pricey, you know, today. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, so NFTs and crypto is kind of the same. It's great. It's clever. It's robust technology. And our uses may be suboptimal. You know, that's on us. And that's, you know, what's all happening today, even with AI and the metaverse and the next thing that is coming up next, you know, the same kind of concern. As much as people blame or want or like to demonize or weaponize blockchain for the lack of any regulation um if we really look at the traditional and unregulated nature of the art and collectible markets we recognize the same patterns you know when humans are left to their own devices chances are that someone may want to take advantage because we get lazy 
and or we get too greedy and that's when someone else you know will will actually arbitrage on us so i would say like the french usually and this is a good spot to you know make a conclusion thoughts but you know they say c'est la vie and i would add c'est pas de le problème de la technologie c'est human nature <laughs> well i'm glad you touched on that i was it was in my mind to ask you um you know the the fallibility or infallibility of the technology, um, you know, in case people were wondering about, well, you know, you know, what, what's the risk of use, relying on that technology. Um, so thank you for covering that. And you mentioned regular, you know, regulatory landscape. So I might just uh, mention this now. I don't think we can cover it any further today, uh, but that's the cross-border aspect. So in wine is a highly, highly regulated space, at least, in the jurisdiction in which we live. And so certainly, you know, NFT and blockchain is global. You can transact globally with people because you're, tra- well, you're transacting on the chain, I suppose, on the uh, the train, <laughs> the train as you call the it, the ra- you know, on the rail. Um, but, you know, on top of that, there are very complex, uh, there's a complex um, myriad of regulations, which could, depending where you live, uh, or, you know, if you're buying or selling, um, you know, for someone who, let's say, wants to create an NFT of a product, you know, are they, you know, are they selling a wine? Are they selling a wine experience? And, you know, are you able to to do that in the jurisdiction in which you are located? So that may or may not have the same kind of conversations that you have for other types of specialized um, products or, or investment assets. But um, I'm just throwing that out there because I think just, and I know this comes up in other conversations, which is the global connectivity we live in. Mm-hmm. I suppose sometimes we're still dancing with, you know, we still live in different jurisdictions. <laughs> yes. So perhaps that's for another discussion. Um, all that to say to people who are listening, who are interested in wondering, hey, in your jurisdiction, if you're going to see any NFTs dropping in the luxury wine space, part of that caveat to that could be, you know, what are, what is the regulatory landscape in the area you live in relation to alcohol, uh, marketing alcoholic products. So I'll just mention that that's a lawyer in me in the background. (laughs) Um, So Sarah, I would like to thank you so much. You know, we've covered a lot today. Um, Thank you so much for, for breaking it down, breaking down complex aspects, particularly the NFT and the blockchain into such a digestible way. I think that um, your, your minute, your pricey was probably the best one I've heard. So I really, really (laughs) appreciate that. And I would like to thank you for broadly always making uh, your discussions so accessible for um, all types of enthusiasts and investors and people who want to learn. Uh, your multidisciplinary approach I find is very helpful and I am no doubt that for your clients it is of great value. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today and uh, perhaps we can have a chat another day on another topic relating to the wine world or wine exploring Um, and I hope to see you soon uh, clinking glasses in this in the real world and not necessarily in the metaverse. Right. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. And a huge thank you to everyone who's been in touch with me to share your feedback and support for this podcast journey, which I've started. I really do appreciate it. I'm loving the creative process of bringing these conversations to you. And now that I have about seven to eight episodes under my belt, I feel that I'm heading in the right track. 
Conversations are a multi-way street, however, and they should be dynamic and versatile. So please do drop me a line if there are any topics or themes which you'd like to hear me discuss with guests. I've already got a long list of future episodes in mind, but I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to contact me at tanya at ttwinecouncil.com, or you can direct message me on Instagram if you play in that space. And like wine, this conversation too can be shared. So if there's a TT Wine Explorer podcast episode, which you enjoy and which you think will resonate with a friend of yours, please share it with them. I'm all grassroots right now, and I'm planning to publish a new episode every two to three weeks. So stay tuned for our next adventure and discussion. Until then, take care and keep learning, tasting, and living.